Good morning, class. Welcome. It is Sunday morning, December 15th. We're celebrating Navy's football victory over Army yesterday. Let the record show. Let me pray for us. We're so grateful, Lord, for this day. This shining sun reminds us of your glory, your intention to provide abundantly for all of our needs. Indeed, you extend your hand and give us so many good gifts, not least a lovely church building to gather in, precious fellow believers to know and enjoy uh, the time to worship you, to seek you. Thank you for the, this, particularly this morning, for the work of our denominations. Not perfect, but as we're going to see, there's, uh, your spirit has moved to bring many, many good things about. So we give you praise and glory and honor for that and celebrate together and pray we would increasingly be a part of what you are doing through this small denomination. In Jesus' name, amen. PCA is relatively small. It's about 270,000 strong, and it's, as churches go, it's fairly small. But I wanted to start, does everybody have one of these? I wanted to start just by showing you how, everybody have one? Yeah. They, they won't stay out there. I want to. Sh- we're going to look at two things today. There you go, guys. We're going to look at two things. What is a PCA doing about ministering in a diverse America? We'll look at this brochure briefly, and then I've got something called the Report on Racial and Ethnic Reconciliation. So we're trying to get to where the rubber meets the road in uh, this whole relationship thing we've been looking at. How do we relate to people that look? act, speak, and think differently about us, and yet, at least here, there are fellow countrymen. But briefly, look at what your denomination is doing to address the fact that America is an incredibly diverse place. We've got uh, church planting uh, among African Americans, Haitian, Hispanic, Korean, Korean ministries, Native Americans, Portuguese, you got Urban and Mercy Ministries there. I think, Frank, you did a Sunday school class fairly recently on Mercy Ministries, right? Was that a couple years ago? It was actually on work. It was on work. Forgive me, I'm sorry. You have the Unity Fund. Your your former pastor, Scott Bridges, is in charge of the Unity Fund. That's uh, partnering resources to to, to, uh, help um, minorities in their theological education. We have partnerships, disaster response, second career. I've met people that after a long career in business or something, they wanted to use their gifts to help in different ministries. You've got M&A short-term missions. So you can see it's in ministry to state, our own Chuck Garriott. That, that, that's the, you know, the bottom panel, of bottom uh, far right. And even more partnerships on the, the flip panel, missional partnerships. So refugee, immigrant. So there's a whole lot going on. It's um, very, very grateful to be in a denomination that's taking seriously the fact that uh, we have a huge sampling of the world living among us. Mission to North America. Not to be confused with MTW, Mission to the World. That is our denomination's branch that is focused on doing missions beyond the confines of North America. So, fantastic, yes? Just a just so grateful, as it were, proud to be a part of a denomination that is using God's resources and mobilizing God's people to do diverse kinds of ministries. Fantastic. 
Thank you, Lord. And of course, we have a role to play in that. What I'd like to do next is look at uh, it's this thick handout that you have in front of you. This is a, this this would be considered the PCA's official position on back. Uh, the PCA's official position on racial and ethnic reconciliation. So this isn't what I think. This is what our denomination teaches. And I just want to put it before you. And I want to begin and give you a little bit of a context for how I believe this came to pass. And that is the single page you have here by uh, Sean Michael Lucas and Lee Duncan. They're two of our denominational leaders. They put this resolution a number of years before this report was committed before our denomination. And I think, I'm not certain, it is acting on things like this and convictions of men like this that led to the paper we're going to look at together. So I thought we would start and look at this specifically. So uh, because it's, it's, it, it gives you some history and tells you why the PCA even needed something like this. Okay. So somebody read the first uh, whereas. Whereas last year and this year mark significant anniversaries in the civil rights movement. 2014 was the 60th anniversary of the United States Supreme Court decision Brown v. Board of Education and the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act and Freedom Summer. And 2015 was the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act and the Selma to Montgomery March. Okay, thanks, Michael. So a little bit of history in our country there. Second, whereas? Many of our conservative Presbyterian churches at the time not only failed to support the civil rights movement, but actively worked against racial reconciliation in both church and society. Okay, let's just push pause. That's a fact. That's a serious black eye on our denomination. It's one of the things that this paper is trying to own and correct. The conservative Bible-believing Christians working against it. Next, whereas? Whereas the 30th General Assembly adopted a resolution on racial reconciliation that confessed its covenantal generational heinous sins connected with unbiblical forms of servitude Thank you, Rock. So there's an acknowledgement of some acknowledgement of past errors, but this paper and this one is coming to pass because there does, doesn't seem to be an acknowledgement of more recent uh, overlooking of owning sin. Okay, next, whereas, 32nd General Assembly. Thank you, Dory. So there was some work done, but according to these two uh, denominational leaders, there were some oversights in what was being acknowledged. Next, whereas our denominations continued. Unwillingness to speak truthfully about our failure to seek justice and to love mercy 
present-day efforts for reconciliation with our African-American brothers and sisters. Thank you, Shirley. Next, whereas... God has once more given our denomination by grace and gracious provisional opportunity to show the beauty, grace, and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ by showing Christ-like love and compassion towards the greater African-American community. Thank you, Frank. Next one. Here come the resolutions in light of those whereases. We have therefore resolved that the 43rd General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America does recognize and confess our church's covenantal and generational involvement in the complicity with racial injustice inside and outside of our churches during the civil rights period. Thanks, Marty. Next one. Be it further resolved that this General Assembly recommit ourselves to the task of truth and reconciliation with our African-American brothers and sisters for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. Thank you, Lisa. And the last one. Be it finally resolved that the General Assembly urges the congregations of the Presbyterian Church in America to confess their own particular sins and failures as may be appropriate and to seek further truth and reconciliation for the gospel's sake within their own local communities. Okay, thank you, Joan Kathy. So, um, yes? When they mentioned the 30th General Assembly and the 30th, 30th second general year of the Do I know the year? Uh, yeah. Um, well, we started in 73, so add 32 to 73, so that's going to be 2004. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah. So this, this isn't binding on anybody, but I thought it was representative of two very well-known, respected leaders in our denomination. Lake Duncan is president of RTS. Sean Michael Lucas uh, taught at Covenant Seminary, is now pastors in Mississippi, written a number of books. Anyway, this doesn't mean this is all true, but I believe this is the kind of thinking and conviction that led to this several years later. This is the PC at interim report. This is what I want you to know about. Okay? You don't have to agree with this, but it's good to know what our denomination, uh, what conclusions they've come to. So, this is going to feel a little pedantic, because we're going to read this, not every line. I've highlighted what I thought was salient for our purposes. But I don't know any other. I could hand it to you and say, read it on your own. But I'm not going to do that. We're going to look at it together as our class. So forgive me if this seems pedantic that for the balance of our time, we're going to be reading text. We can talk about it if you want to. But this is, my, this is I thought, the best way to enter into uh, our examination of racial and ethnic justice. This is what our denomination. This is where our den what our denomination has done. So very grateful for that. Here's the introductory paragraph. The 44th General Assembly, in response to an overture from Potomac Presbytery, what church is in Potomac Presbytery? Wallace established an ad interim committee to study issues related to rec racial reconciliation. Our committee had a four-part mandate. First, the committee was charged to assess the current situation in the PCA concerning racial and ethnic reconciliation. Next, we were to identify specific problems the PCA needs to address to promote racial reconciliation and ethnic diversity. 
In addition, the committee was to develop constructive guidelines and suggest concrete steps for the use of the PCA, including all presbyteries and sessions to, uh, in order to make progress toward the work of rac racial reconciliation. Finally, the committee was to report to the 45th General Assembly. Okay? So let's skip down then to line 35. And again, you can read... Yes, My Michael? I, I know I walked in a little late, but if we didn't, can we address what, what is the definition of racial reconciliation? I think it's going to tease that out. Okay. This is going to tease that out, yeah. But, okay, well, let's... On the surface, how would some of you answer that question? What are we, what are we actually striving for here? Fair question. Unity. Unity among diverse people in the body of Christ. Seeing, seeing each other as image bearers and thus do honor and respect. Okay. Acknowledging our physical differences. But, uh, the, but the thing that unites us is being image bearers and being unified in Christ. David? The reconciliation part of it is admission of the failures of the past and repentance associated with that. Okay. That, you saw that come out in the uh, paper by Lucas and Duncan. Anything else? Change in the future. Okay. How do we, what do we address in the future? Because if there's a church that's located in a place where it's surrounded by uh, ethnic diversity and it deliberately puts its head in the sand and does nothing to reach that community, racial reconciliation would be an attempt to change, examine why is that, what, do we need to repent of anything, and begin to bless the local community where God has planted you. In the ideal, a local church should reflect the faces, as it were, of the local community in the ideal. Is that a good thing to say? Okay. Let's see if we get more clarity, uh, Michael, as we move forward. So I'm down to line 35. We work within the definitions and direction of the pastoral letter on racism approved by the 32nd General Assembly. So this isn't the first time this has come up. And so we presume the definitions of race and racism contained in that document. Race, the word race, as used in this pastoral letter, is not a scientific classification. Rather, in the language of one author, the term race is used to denote a social phenomenon with a biological component. I'm guessing that's Thomas Sowell, the African-American columnist and author of uh, race and culture. That is, the term race not only pertains to the color of skin and other biological factors, but also may include the cultural factors, associations, and assumptions that we attach to certain races as well. Let me push pause. I was uh, sent recently a wonderful talk given at Washington Christian Academy by the head of theology there, Andrew Menkes. Does anybody know Andrew? Okay. He, um, he gave a talk, at, I think it's a chapel talk there at school, called The Image of God, Race and Ethnicity. It is superb. It's really good. And he goes into the history of where discriminating on the basis of race comes from. Um, and he's got a, he's speaking pure orthodoxy, I believe. He's got a degree from Westminster uh, Seminary in California. But anyway, if you'd like to, if you'd like a copy of this, I was tempted to go through this, but I said, if you'd like a copy of this, here they are. It's, it's really an amplification on uh, the definitions of race and, and ethnicity. I'll tell you that he basically says there's one race, the human race, 
And if you wanted to divide, it would be Adam's fallen race or Christ's redeemed race. One race and lots of ethnicities. Lots of ethnicities. And this report acknowledges that. He just does so in a very clear, simple way. If you'd like one of these, please... uh, Maybe we'll just rate, if you want one, take it and we'll pass it around the room. It's an excellent read. Okay, so now we're at the top of 2402, racism. Somebody read that for us. Thank you. So just trying to get some terms out there for you. Okay, I'm going to skip down to line 18. Of course, we've also been mindful of the recent action of the 44th General Assembly in 2016, which acted to recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of corporate and historical sins, including those committed during the Civil Rights era, and continuing racial sins of ourselves and our fathers and of past failures to love brothers and sisters from minority cultures in accordance with what the gospel requires, as well as failures to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters concerning racial sins and personal bigotry. That assembly also recommended itself, recommitted itself to the gospel task of racial reconciliation, diligently seeking effective courses of action to further that goal with humility, sincerity, and zeal for the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel. These assembly actions have served as framework for this committee's study and recommendations. However, we also know that from the very beginning of the PCA's existence, the biblical theological framework was present to deal with issues of racial sin and to seek racial reconciliation and justice. Not only did the advisory convention of the Continuing Presbyterian Church, that's what we were called at the beginning, meeting in August of 1973, declare that our church would welcome fellow believers in Christ regardless of race, In addition, at the first General Assembly, O. Palmer Robertson gave an address that provided the necessary theological framework for moving forward on this issue. Who is he? (laughs) One of your former pastors. I don't think he was pastoring here in 73. Right, it was subsequent to that. But there you go, famous Wallace. (laughs) Okay, so they're given some, they're saying from the beginning of our denomination, this was a commitment. Okay? Obviously, that the fact that in 2018 we have this shows that the traction didn't take place, the ground didn't get covered, but from the beginning it was there. I'm going to pick up reading. I look at the, now we're on 2403, just I underline line 5. The committee was not starting from scratch and offering us report, this report. They're just acknowledging work's been done, we're building on convictions, movements, <coughs> Of our, uh, and the history of our denomination. Looking at line 20, who would read some of the affirmations that are part of their guiding principles? Just who would read those six affirmations? We affirm the Bible as God-breathed, infallible, and inerrant. We affirm the vision of the redeemed in Revelation 7, 9-11, where all nations and ethnicities are fulfilled in Christ. We affirm the image of God reflected in all people, 
we affirm the image of Christ reflected in his body. We affirm that for the Christian, all human identities must be subordinate to identity in Christ. We affirm that biblical righteousness has dimensions of both piety and justice. We affirm the Westminster Standards. Thank you, Shirley. For those of you who don't know, we are what's called a confessing church. That means our church has a body of doctrine that's already uh, spelled out explicitly that we believe is a summary of biblical doctrine. And they're called the Westminster, it's called the Westminster Confession of Faith, along with the larger and shorter catechisms. It was produced at Parliament's demand in England in, from 1643 to 1648. Most of us think it's the finest summary of Christian doctrine ever published. All of your elders and deacons and pastors have assented that they believe it is the sis, a just summary of the system of doctrine taught in the Bible. And we promised these, uh, Nate did last week, Frank did last week, that if at any time they find themselves out of accord with this system, they'll make known the change in their views to their session. That is a safeguard for you, the people of God that should they begin to get, or the pastors get funky ideas about theology, they need to have enough integrity to say, I'm thinking differently about this. Is that okay? And that's how, that's what the PCA, just a little church history here real quick, sorry. The PCA started because the, the mainline denominations had gone liberal theologically. Historically, denominations go liberal not because fine, ordained, ruling elders who are businessmen and work in the government and uh, administrators, not because they go liberal, but because, pa- because pastors coming out of local seminaries hijack denominations. And that's what happened in the Southern Church, the PCUS. And, and what happened is committees and, and presbyteries got stacked with pastors, and that's where the liberalism came, and so all the votes went in the, went in the direction of liberalism, leaving the, ruling, the conservative Bible-living ruling elders who believe everything you just affirmed here with nothing to say. So when the PCA started, they said that all committees of the denomination must be made up of equal numbers of ruling and teaching elders. Balance. Genius. Very good. Questions about that? My, I've got a friend, I don't know if Paul Settle's still alive or not, but anybody you know the Statesman Paul Church Paul Settle, he uh, he helped me with my officer training in my young church in Fort Worth, and I remember him saying that he was on the floor of his presbytery or general assembly, pleading with his fellow presbyters as a minister in the PCUS, pleading from the Bible, and people were yelling, "Put that book away." That's why the PCA exists. What were the three things it was committed to from the beginning? The Great Commission, Scripture, anybody help me here, what's the third one? Whatever, three really good things. (laughs) (laughs) That's something you would agree with, I'm sure. Well, that's too specific. Yeah. <laughs> Authority of Scripture, uh, the Great Commission, and probably you know maybe the Westminster Idols. Okay, <laughs> affirmations, beloved affirmations. Denials. Now you're going to hear some words in here you maybe never heard, but who would read our denials? 
I'll push pause after you read the first one at the bottom of 2403. Who would read that for us? We reject theological liberalism defined by J. Gresham Macon and Christianity and liberalism as a different gospel from the scriptural gospel. Thank you, Michael. Let's push pause. Machen was teaching at Princeton. This is in the early uh, 1900s. The liberalism was, was taking over the seminaries. It starts back with the Enlightenment, starts in the 1800s, all that. And so, basically, Machen writes a book that says, if you want to deny the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the substitutionary atonement, and the visible second coming of the Lord Jesus, those are the five fundamentals that the liberals did not like. He says, when you want to deny those, stop calling what you believe Christianity. It's not Christianity. They wanted to be Christians, but not believe any of those things. So that gave rise to this landmark book. It's a classic book, Christianity and Liberalism, saying liberalism is, theologianism is a different religion than biblical Christianity. And it is, when you deny those things. Okay. So this, this is just saying, we're with Machen on that. And so what did Machen do when the liberal writing was on the proverbial wall? He went down to Philadelphia and started Westminster Seminary. Who right? And I'm grateful to... What's that? And the OPC as well. And the OPC. Yeah. That's right. Thank you. Well, wasn't it that he was actually kicked out? Yeah, yeah they kicked yeah. him out, didn't they? Let's <laughs> <laughs> get your history right, Mike. What a badge of honor. It's sad. It's just tragic. But. So which of these things were problematic for the PCUSA? Uh, that, uh, under the denials, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah, um, I just want to give you a context for Machen's Christianity and liberalism. So, so who's Dory? Yeah. So, PCA came out of PCUS. Yeah. Not so much the PC. Southern. The new PC. Yeah. Right. So yeah. it came out of the southern ones, so though. I don't know if the formation of the PCA was on the radar screen. Is it UPC? USA? Oh, PC USA existed in parallel with PC US yeah. in the north and still exists today. And there's still churches who stayed for a long time in PC USA. 10th president of Philadelphia was for a long time trying to stay in the PC USA until finally, I guess it was voice was instrumental. And yeah. And that's our there are great politics here. Right. And I understand that, that the, the UPC in the North, that the UPC in the North and the PC US in the South were headed towards a merger, but delayed it, and the PCA got started anyway. Subsequent to 73, they merged to form the PC USA. Well, they were. Is that right? They were, I believe they were one church before the Civil War, and the Civil War split them apart. And then there was an attempt for reunification after. And since that, the PCA has been trying to join with the OPC, but it hadn't happened. Many of us think, too bad, we should. We have to believe the exact same stuff. All right, a little off subject. Thank you. Got some good historians in the group. So we're at the top of 2404, and we're, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're rejecting these following things. Who started reading for us? I, was it Michael? Thank you, Michael. Good. We reject Marxism and socialism and all, all ideologies based on either one or both. 
We reject racism in all its forms, ontological, cultural, systemic, at all. We reject as barren and anti-biblical any theological formulations incorporating racism or racial superiority. We reject intersectionality, not solely based on biblical norms. We reject human identities that demand precedence over identity in Christ. We reject human identities based on unbiblical lifestyles or behaviors. We reject the notion that God's people are designated by anything other than God's sovereign election. We reject as inadequate any analysis of racism that does not recognize sin and the fall of mankind as its root. Thank you. There's some fancy words there I actually never heard of, but the footnotes explain them. So you can look at that on your own time. Let's, um, and, yes, Nate? Before we leave this, sure. um, I think it's interesting that they put socialism in here, and I think it's also relevant to the I don't want to talk about either of those now. <laughs> but, but this this is like something that we are rejecting. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, it's I a worldview, though. I think it's important in this paper because I think a lot of people would say, oh, you, you're talking about racism stuff, or you, you're trying to drive us towards socialism or communism or something like that. And, no, and that's not the point. Yeah. Yes. Good. Okay, thank you. Um, now what, what happens is you can see the biblical theological foundations. I'm, I don't think you had any trouble believing any of this, so I'm going to skip to line 32 on 2405, just for the, sake, uh, for the sake of condensing. I know it's, it's a little dicey to ask you to read something you've never seen before, particularly in this kind of document, but somebody take a stab at reading force beginning at line 32 there, and you're going to go spill over into the top of the next page through that paragraph. So who would like to read that for us? Creation is not a picture of uniformity. Rather, from the inception of creation, there is diversity. And in the continuing divine work of creation, God continued to foster diversity. In the creation of plant life and animal life, we have the repeated phrase, according to its or their kind, God did not create a homogenous plant and animal life. Um, God created plants and animals according to various kinds, not according to the same kind. God created different kinds of plants and fruit trees. He created different kinds of sea creatures and birds. He created different kinds of livestock, creeping things and beasts of the field. As Abraham Kuyper declared, raise your eyes, look up to the starry heavens, and you will see not just a single beam of light, but an undulating, scintillating,
in the ever-varying shape of the snowflake as well as in the endless differentiation form, differentiated form of flower and leaf. Where in God's entire creation do you encounter life that does not display un the unmistakable hallmark of life precisely in the multiplicity of its colors and dimensions in the, in, in the capriciousness of its ever-changing forms? You chose a hard one there. That's a good job. Okay? Thank you, Abraham Kuyper. These words are true not simply for animate and inanimate creation. These words are also true for the crown of God's creation, humanity. Somebody read for us, and you have just have to trust me that I'm picking and choosing for your good. Uh, beginning at verse 23 to 30. Thus, all humanity has in common the image of God. And yet, what diversity springs from the fountainhead? As Adam and Eve fulfill the creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28 And as that creation mandate is restated to Noah and his sons, Genesis 9.1 and 7, the diversity found in the table of nations, Genesis 10, is the result. Their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. This diversity was not a mistake, mishap, or miscalculation. Rather, diversity was by divine design. Indeed, man did not create diversity, but God did. Thanks, Story. I thought we'd pick up then at, at the bottom at 40, line 40. We would read that paragraph under the next page. Part of the fall has affected the creation mandate. The result means that the image bearers will abuse and misuse the mandate to exercise dominion over other image bearers through oppression, abuse, and presupposed superiority. Human nature is now embedded with a simple desire to dominate other people. Cain's murder of his brother Abel was the first example of one image bearer misusing dominion over another. Cain did not value his brother's life, so he took it. He, did, he was not his brother's <clears throat> Thank you. So, so what's, what, what are they saying here? Because of sin, what's the history of the world? Oppression. Human beings oppressing each other. Janice and I are watching Ken Burns' um, documentary called what The West, and we, we all knew how awful we, we treated the Indians. Well, I learned there that the Indians treat each other awfully. And it's just an illustration of that. Not in every case, but in some cases. They were savage towards each other. So as soon as the culture gets dominant because of sin, they might want to dominate other people as, as a rule. So this, this is the sordid history of mankind. Sin is in the world. This is what people do to each other. Doesn't matter what their skin color is. From that moment to this, human history is filled with examples of image bearers not being keepers of one another. Throughout the history of the world, nations and ethnic groups have made claims of purity over other nations and ethnic groups. These claims and beliefs in some self-crowned superiority are lived out in how these nations and ethnic groups treat each other, people with whom they deem inferior. We see it in other sins as well, murder, abortion, slavery, abuse, sex trading, oppression, injustice. We see it in the presumption that one culture is superior and demands that all other cultures must assimilate. The simple desire to have dominion over others cripples the various ethnicities from understanding and lovingly embracing their differences and diversity. 
This dominion over others, both intentional and unintentional, is at times manifested in misuses and abuses by men in positions of power, leading to the voicelessness and broken fellowship of brothers from minority groups. Indeed, all men struggle with power. We struggle with the power of worship over our very lives. But Jesus came to reorient relationships of power, and we submit and surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit. We seek to see others as greater than ourselves. Philippians 2. Any thoughts, questions, comments on that? So the next two paragraphs, God responds to all this sinning. And let's pick up then at... um, Let's go to the next page, 2408. You know that God found this intolerable and did something about it. And you have pictures of the final result of redemption. So 2408, line 15. Somebody read that paragraph for us. And so, for example, Isaiah 2 envisions a day when all the nations shall flow to Mount Zion to be ruled by the Lord. All ungodly oppression... Injustice, superiority, violence will come to an end. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. In Isaiah 11, as the Davidic branch and the, uh, the root of Jesse stands as a signal for the peoples, of him uh, the nations inquire. He gathers people from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, from the coastlands, Isaiah 11, 10, and 11. Uh, the nations come into God's people under the rule of the Davidic king, Isaiah 42. Looks forward to the servant who will be a covenant for the people and a light for the nations, Isaiah 42, 6, 49, 6, Acts 13, uh, 47. And Isaiah closes with a vision of the new creation coming in which God will gather his people from all nations and languages, some of whom will be priests and Levites. Isaiah 66, 18 to 21, 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. Thanks, Frank. Okay, visions of the end, ethnic diversity. It continues. How about 36, uh, line 36? Into the next page. When one turns to page to read the first words of the New Testament, that reader finds pages filled with import. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. With these words, the gospel writer tell us that the promised Davidic king, the promised family blesser, here he is. Here is the one who will redeem us as individuals. He will save his people from their sins. Here is the one who will include the diversity of the nations among his people, as evident even by his own genealogy, which includes Canaanites, Moabites, enemies of God, racial others. And go ahead and finish that. Jesus does this through the cross. Through the cross, he deals with the sin that poisons us, the sin that convicts us before a holy God. His cross reconciles us to God because on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God through him. Through the cross, Christ made propitiation for our sins. He was our atoning sacrifice that satiated God's wrath and satisfied God's justice. Thank you, Marty. I will continue 
But it is also through the cross of Jesus that God pulls down the dividing wall of hostility that alienates races and ethnicities from one another. In Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, Paul tells the Gentiles that they were alienated from God and from God's people. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Not only were they without hope and without God, but they were actively hostile toward one another There was a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile that was both religious and racial. But now, because of our common union in Jesus, and because of the blood of Jesus, we have been brought near to God, his promises, and his people. Christ has become our peace, our shalom, our wholeness, and our well-being. And he has done this by making us one new man, breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Regardless of racial background, reinforced by religious pre-commitments, now in Jesus we have been reconciled to God in one body through the cross. We have a common access to the Father by the Spirit, and we are fellow citizens of God's commonwealth, whether Jew or Gentile, whether white or black, Asian or Latino, or other races or ethnicities. Through the cross of Jesus we have been and are being reconciled, displaying one new humanity to the watching world. And the next paragraph says the same thing in Colossians. Verse 30, uh, line 37. This does not do away with ethnicity or race. But this one new humanity points us in the direction of Revelation 7 in which people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, are brought together by the blood of Jesus to sing his praise. The particularity and individuality of a nation's tribes, peoples, and languages is not done away with. Rather, the diversity and unity of the praise, each in their own language, will redound to the splendor and praise of the God who redeemed his people with the blood of his son, Jesus. And even at the end of the biblical story, the kings of the nations will bring their glory into the new city. All that is good as a result of our diversity will be present, not as a colorblind, not in a colorblind fashion, but precisely in the rich diversity that God has made. Thus, the biblical storyline shows us how God, the creator, purposes for diversity and unity to cohere together. Through the work of Jesus the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David, those who are redeemed by the blood of the cross are brought together into one body called the church. Jesus has not reconciled us to one another simply so we can relate to each other, He's reconciled us together so we can love one another in humility. I'm going to stop there. Don't you love a denomination that's so cross-centered, Christ-centered, biblically-centered, and good stuff. Any closing comments or thoughts? I'm going to pick up next week on page 2410. I hope this isn't too pedantic. I apologize for that at the beginning, but I want you to know what your denomination teaches. Let me pray for us as we go to worship. What a miracle that you have taken out our hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh. That we would want to be here, Lord, to learn from your word, to seek you, to honor you, to be transformed by your spirit, and now to go together with one voice, one heart, all looking different from each other, particularly at Wallace and to give glory and honor to the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this gift. So this next hour and a half is a gift from your hand, a gift to seek you, to hear you, to sing together, 
to be one people, one new redeemed humanity, and yet looking different. It's just beautiful. Thank you, Howard Wallace, that we have a, a snippet here of the nations before the throne in heaven, uh, giving glory to the king. So help us to worship you, to please you, to adore you. Bless the children as they're singing. And uh, everyone who has a part in the service, particularly as I open my mouth, Lord, weak, frail, uh, completely uh, uh, nothing apart from you as a person I am. As I open my mouth, may my words bless your people and encourage them. Give them comfort and joy and hope and draw them into the heart of Jesus. And may they be life-enriching and encouraging and transforming by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.